0: Welcome to Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Shub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar. This is your forum for exploring and discussing challenges that are faced by public and nonprofit leaders. And now, Leadership Matters. Welcome to another edition of Leadership Matters, a show that aims to support the
1: leadership development of current and future public and nonprofit leaders. Each episode is designed to inform leaders and inspire solutions. I'm Tom Wall, and I'll serve as a moderator of our discussion today. I work with the Alliance for Strong Families and Communities and for the Strategic Change Initiative. We work together to help organizations to strengthen and transform themselves to assure a more successful future. With me today, as our guest panelist, is my good friend Ann Corner from the Alliance's Center on Leadership. Ann, would you please introduce yourself?
2: Yes, Tom. Good afternoon. Excuse me. Good afternoon, everybody. I've been with the Alliance for almost 10 years now, and as Tom mentioned, I currently serve on the Center on Leadership team, so I'm happy to be with you this afternoon.
1: Wonderful. It's good to have you. Ann and I are both proud to have with us as our special guest, John Tianetta, the President and CEO of Heartland Family Services in Omaha, Nebraska. John, it's good to have you with us today. Would you please introduce yourself to our listening audience?
3: Hi, Tom and Ann. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yes, um, I'm the President and CEO of Heartland Family Service. i uh, been here for eight, months, or eight years and three months now, so about a fourth of the way through my ninth year and I love every minute of it. Probably the best job on earth. Outstanding.
1: Well, you served, as you say, as the Heartland Family Services CEO since 2009. How was Heartland different back in 2009, and what have you been working to establish in the years that you've been the executive leader?
3: So, um, you know, Heartland Family Service uh, is a, a mature organization. We were founded in 1875, so we've been around a long time. Uh, for probably the first uh, 50 years, we were largely a volunteer organization, and so um, didn't move into that space of being a real formal business until the 1920s. And um, when I came along in 2009, we had really made the transition from sort of a small A low impact organization to a fairly high impact prominent organization in this area. My predecessor, Pete Tulipana, had been the CEO for 22 years, and in that, in those 22 years, he took the organization from 1.6 million to a 16.5 million uh, company, and uh, doing a variety of things, not only in Omaha but also in Council Bluffs, Iowa, and um, in surrounding counties in both Nebraska and Iowa, and. and when I came along, um, it was really an opportunity. There was an opportunity to build on that um, history of um, success and um, to sort of take the organization to yet another level. And that's what we've been working on. Well, uh, we Why were really you fortunate. The
1: programs and services that you offer now, and you were mentioning many different locations. Where are the locations you offer your services from?
3: Well, we offer... Um, Programs and services in uh, three different focus areas. Uh, the largest, about forty percent of our work is in counseling and prevention, and that includes mental health counseling and um, addictions work, both residential and outpatient. And then, um, and obviously, prevention work. Uh, the next would be housing and financial stability, and in that particular program, we uh, menu of programs were. Um, any given day, we're um, helping about 250 households with safe housing, um, again, throughout the Metro Omaha-Council Bluffs area. And then our last category of services or programs is called Child and Family. Uh, this is child welfare, juvenile justice, as well as a number of more asset-building programs, senior center, after- summer school program for girls, a number of early childhood initiatives, and those sorts of things. Um, and, and we offer those programs from 19 locations, again- largely in Omaha, Council Bluffs, Metropolitan, Statistical Area.
1: We've grown quite a bit over the last eight years during the time that uh, you've been the CEO. What have been the most rewarding parts of the growth of your organization?
3: Well, um, gosh, it's uh, hard to just maybe nail down um, one or two things, but I mean, overall, the um, organization is just continues to grow and have a bigger impact um, and experience more success. Our operating budget uh, has grown by almost sixty seven percent from sixteen and a half million to twenty seven and a half million. And wow. when we rebudget in January, it'll be well over thirty. Um, we are our, um, our, our balance sheet, our assets and liabilities have grown by one hundred and thirty one percent from twenty one million to almost uh, forty nine million. Our um, Fundraising has gone from um, 2.2 million to almost 3 million. Um, Our endowment has doubled from three million three million to six million. So we've 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 seen a lot of um, progress, a lot of program expansion, Uh, where we started up programs to meet needs uh, where there were there was no programming or when new opportunities came along, and um, and as we've done that. Uh, We've really focused on strategy. We were really, really lucky to be chosen by the alliance to be one of, I think, and you can correct me, Anne, I think 20 agencies or 21 agencies across the um, alliance that were selected to participate in a Kresge-funded initiative called Strategy Counts. Mm -hmm. We used our funding to hire uh, or promote someone to be a chief strategy officer and take some work we were already doing with the balanced scorecard performance management system and really... um, take that up to a a more um, profound level and push down throughout the organization more deeply so that now every single program has its own scorecard that's related to the corporate scorecard. Um, All of our quality improvement team um, management processes are linked to the scorecard. So everything is sort of funneled into one place, and it's more meaningful for the staff and they're starting to use that data. It's not, in the past I think it was, oh, I have this quarterly obligation to go online and fill out this form and share it, data about how my program is doing. Um, and, and I think people just saw it as this extra sort of um, managerial responsibility and they didn't necessarily see it as helpful or were using it in a way that would be helpful to actually managing the programs to do better and better. And, and that's all really changed or is changing. Well, and um
1: as as you've grown, John, what have been the big challenges that you've had to overcome um I mean, obviously, you've grown very rapidly um and it's wonderful the success that you've had, but there have to have been a number of challenges that were presented to you that you had to overcome. Could you talk to us about that?
3: Well, one we're still working on is just culture, so um We've recognized, so one of the things we did with our chief strategy officer, sort of a baseline activity, was we created and sort of finalized our ideas around our intended impact and theory of change, and part of that theory of change was understanding the impact trauma has on the people that we serve and we as employees and how those, how that dynamic can be good or bad if we're not aware of it, and what we need to do as an organization then to... Um, change processes and programs to be reflective and responsive to that underlying trauma. Because if we're going to get sustained change, we have to address the underlying trauma because everything else that comes from that tends to be a symptom of the untreated trauma and not necessarily the, the real Uh, where the focus of the effort should be. So, like, if someone comes to us and they're experiencing addiction, the driver of that is untreated trauma. If we just take care of the addiction, we really haven't accomplished anything that's going to be sustainable. And so um, so by focusing on that, really becoming clear about our theory of change, um, that meant then that we needed to really change our culture in a way that was trauma-informed. And so changing culture is just not an easy thing to do. Um, people will get it and will get on board with it but there are some people that just aren't and um, obviously we're going to offer lots of opportunities and training and what have you to help people get there but eventually some people just aren't or can't and the way that you get the change you need is that they leave the organization and find their dream job elsewhere. Sure. and that and that takes time. So that's been a big challenge. Uh we're getting there but it just takes time. I think we'll uh, the other has come been just managing growth.
1: Talk a little bit more about culture uh in the next segment, but while we're still in this segment, one of the things that folks often mention when they talk about the challenges of growth is managing to extend your infrastructure uh, sufficiently uh, and wisely. Uh, As you grow, say, in in a program arena, how have you managed your infrastructure during this
3: time of change and growth? Well, again, um, through the Alliance, uh, we, I, every, so our um, executive committee um, serves a two year term. So every other year I have a new board chair. And um, several years ago, started the tradition of always going um, to the Alliance's board chair, CEO, Institute. And as part of the, the very first one that I attended with my board chair at the time, one of the advance articles that we received was about the um, starvation cycle of nonprofits that don't invest sufficiently in capacity and in infrastructure. And I shared that with the board, and the board then tasked me and the leadership team to always keep our indirect rate at around 15% so that we could avoid that starvation cycle. And they constantly look at that and reinforce that we should be making sure that we're not too lean because it doesn't serve our clients or our agency well. And so I think that's really helped uh, us as part of our strategic plan and our growth to make sure that we're always looking at what are the, if we're going to go to the next level, what do we need for accounting? What do we need for communications? What do we need for IT? What do we need for, um, you know, all those various um, functions and so for example, this year we're adding a full-time compliance officer. We're adding a, an analyst to really help uh, help us explore our, and, and identify ways that we can maximize billing and revenues. Uh, we're adding additional um, IT personnel to help just with our electron, our new electronic health record. Uh, so it, we're constantly making improvements there to man, help us um, keep pace with growth. Outstanding. We have to
1: take a short break. stay with us. we'll be right back.
0: it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Leadership Matters is brought to you by InnoVisions. Need to improve leadership, staff, or organization performance? Contact InnoVisions today for quality, effective, and affordable leadership, staff, and organization development training, coaching, and consulting services. Call 858-244-8264. That's 858-244-8264. Or send an email to Dr. White. Her email address is drwhite at Innovisions.org. Innovisions is a social enterprise of the Neighborhood House Association of San Diego, California. Funds raised go to support the Neighborhood House Association's mission, developing children, families, and future leaders of our communities through empowerment, education, and wellness. Does your organization lack proper leadership?
2: Is your work life balance in most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your
0: favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar. If you have a question or comment about today's program, Please call 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. Or send an email to matters at innovations.org. Now, back to Leadership Matters. We're back.
1: I'm Tom Wall, and with me is Ann Corner and our special guest, John Gianetta, the President and CEO of Heartland Family Services in Omaha, Nebraska. In the last segment, John was reviewing the programs and services that Heartland offers and some of the unique challenges of their rapid growth. John, a while back, Heartland Family Services was a cohort member of one of the Alliance's transformation projects. Could you describe the Alliance's transformation project that you participated in for us?
3: Yeah, so um, this was an 18-month program. We were... um accepted into with a dozen other um, agencies, again, from across the country that participate in the alliance. And, uh, you know, we all met uh, a couple of times in that time frame and then had phone calls and one-on-one coaching. And in um, that initial um, convening, um, before we left that convening, we had um, identif- listened to a lot of research and what other what the other agencies in the room were going through, talked a lot about <laughs> Transformation and organizational change, and how that happens. And then we identified um, some areas or three areas that we wanted to work on as an organization and went back to our agencies and developed a plan, which then for the remainder of the 18 months we worked on implementing and continue actually to work on. It's a three year plan for us. And, um, you know, largely we were looking at our residential programs. And how do we make them more effective, more trauma-informed, more family-centered, more community-based, and um, to yield outcomes that were sustainable? But we were also looking at it for our purpose as um, also how do we take those learnings and apply them agency-wide to get transformational impact for everything that we do? Because all of our programs can be more family-centered, all of us can be more trauma-informed, et cetera, et cetera. And so that that was what we did. We we have seven residential programs, uh, three that focus on women and children, and three that focus on children. And um, and we started with those. I I created a a steering committee of of the program directors and other um, administrators involved in those programs, and we meet uh, every other month. And we have our plan that we're working through. And so when we meet, we're reporting out how things are going. We're helping each other problem solve. We're sharing ideas. And we're, we've, we've um, been able to get really great traction in moving some big rocks ahead that we, uh, before this, haven't been able to really move.
1: Outstanding. You mentioned some of the areas that you decided to focus on during your transformation project.
3: Could you elaborate more on that for our listening audience? Yeah, so one was on training, developing, and supporting the workforce. Uh, so like I had said earlier, you know, we've been really focused on trauma-informed care. We implemented uh, creating cultures of trauma-informed care model, and we already had in place a steering committee and work groups uh, where we have our different programs organized by similar focus areas, and they're meeting regularly and implementing all different sorts of activities to increase our capacity around physical and emotional safety and trustworthiness, choice collaboration and empowerment. And so but we had some really specific things that we wanted to do there, some training that we wanted to do with our staff to help teach them some of the skills we teach our clients all the time around emotional self regulation. Uh, we wanted to um, um really expand our ability to to create and provide individual guidance for the clients in our residential programs so that uh, the work that we were doing with them was more individualized where every staff person would understand the triggers and coping strategies that were most effective for the people that we were serving um, and, some, and to implement several uh, evidence-based um, practices for helping people with um, trauma histories. Uh, we had another um, area of focus that was on... Um, increasing family engagement in our um, programs um, and helping to support them on a pathway to permanency and well-being. And so, um, you know, we started with focus groups with families and we started then um, um, implementing additional evidence-based practices that are designed around increasing family engagement or serving family needs like Circle of Security, which is an evidence-based practice around um, teaching parenting and helping parents understand how their trauma histories can get in the way and what they can do about that. Um, we also um, had a focus area that was on um, integrating services into a continuum of care uh, to support the um, children and their families. And so, again, we'd already been doing some work on integration across the agency, really, because that be- the counseling and um, addictions treatment, the behavioral health services that we offer, are really sort of uh, uh, one of the things that we do best and we're best known for um, but previously, all that work was really siloed. And so we've been really trying to, how do we break that down? Because we were just letting funding streams and the barriers that those funding streams dictate get in the way of just common sense partnering, internal partnering, which is the value add of being a multi-service organization.
2: Absolutely. And so
3: how, how do we break down those barriers and just really look, how do we integrate those services across how do we bring more behavioral health services into our group home or into our crisis stabilization center or into our um, senior center or summer school program? And uh, that's where there's been some really exciting progress that's been made, and it's, it's just phenomenal.
1: During the first segment, you referred to about how challenging it is to change the culture of your organization. Can you talk to us about what you've learned about culture and the importance of directly address, addressing
3: cultural challenges uh, with your staff and with your leaders? Well, culture is top-down, so the people at the top need to be modeling it consistently. There's almost no room for error. And so everybody everybody on the leadership team has to be in complete agreement about what the culture is and how it should or shouldn't be expressed, et cetera. And I think initially there was some... That maybe wasn't the case. Um, But as people have retired and new people have come on, I think we're to the point now where we have, at, at at the top of the organization, there's great, great synchronicity and agreement and collaboration and support around what the culture is and should be. So I think there's more clear communication to staff about what we're looking for. But another thing, and we learned this through this transformational project, was that it's not enough to talk about a culture and, and what that means. You, at some point, you have to get very specific about what are the behaviors that would demonstrate that you are operating within that culture that you desire. So what are the positive behaviors? But then what are the behaviors that we're not looking for and you'll get coaching on? And then what are the behaviors that we're not looking for and, and in fact, are absolutely unacceptable and if those behaviors should ever emerge, then we would be having a discussion immediately about helping you to find your dream job elsewhere. Yeah. And so one of the activities as part of our action plan was to go out and meet with all of our staff and get their feedback on, what, on those three, those three um, things. What are the positive behaviors that should be rewarded? What are the behaviors that will result in coaching? And what are the behaviors that would result in help you leaving to find your dream job elsewhere? And then taking all of that information and boiling it down and then sharing that back out with staff and with supervisors and incorporating it in our supervision, which sure. we'd also modified and, and um, really incorporated a lot of the research out there on what trauma-informed supervision looks like. And mm-hmm. we had, we, we've done that training now with um, all of our supervisors. And so now building in sort of this um, bank of behaviors that we're looking at so to help the feedback that's given be as specific as possible.
1: One of the things that you alluded to also in the, the first segment is that you, you learned that sometimes staff can't do what you want them to do because they don't have the skills. And I know that you've put forth considerable effort uh, to try and revise and rethink your training for your staff. Can you talk to us about what you did to try and help staff who couldn't do it just because they didn't have the skills to actually develop those skills and be able to do what you needed them to do.
3: Well, we've done a couple different things in our, um, in, um, one of our residential programs, it's, uh, it's called youth links. It's, uh, um, crisis stabilization program for kids ages 10 to 18. So they're, they're referred to us from probation or the court system. Um, and they, they need a safe place to stay, but not necessarily a detention center. So it's an alternative to detention. There's secure egress and regress. There's a school on site. If they can't go to their um, regular school for whatever reason, maybe risk of running or what have you. Um, and through this transformational program, we, um, have added additional therapy staff, and we're doing dialectical behavior therapy and other groups with the kids to help them really quickly start to identify and deal with their underlying traumas. But uh, what we did there was we actually created a position called a behavioral coach, a staff person who's on the floor working with the staff and doing training on the fly um, so that they're helping the staff understand that individualized training guidance that we've developed but they're also, when, the, when um, they're seeing um, issues come up, they're jumping in to help direct or redirect or doing after-action reviews to say, okay, this is what happened. What could we do better the next time? That sort of a thing. And, um, and then we're also, um, as I think I mentioned in the first segment, we created a, a whole training series called Heartland Harmony Series, um, basically taking um, dialectical behavior therapy skills and teaching those to our staff in a seven-part seminar series where each each, meet, each seminar is about an hour long. And, um, and, we've, and we've received really, really, really good feedback from our employees about that training. Outstanding. Outstanding.
1: How important was it to the, your success within the transformation project to get your staff involved in developing your whole transformation plan? And how do you
3: go about getting your staff involved in doing that with you? Well, I mean, it's critical because um, that's how you get buy-in to the change. And, and especially in a culture that's trauma-informed, there's no room for top-down um, management edicts. It's, it's got to be a servant leadership approach, which means everyone gets to have input and as much choice as possible. And so, as I mentioned before, I created that steering committee, and we brought staff in who were involved in the programs and um had them provide that input and they continue to do that. I mean, it's, of course, we have this written plan, but it's also dynamic. And so as new things come along, we're chained, new opportunities come along, or we get new insights from the work that we're doing. We're making changes. And that to me is one of the most exciting things, especially as I see, you know, our program directors who work largely in outpatient behavioral health services figuring out ways to help collaborate and share resources with our our program directors working in youth residential programs, and or the uh, program director who does a lot of in-home services for our um, for our youth, figuring out ways to collaborate on the residential side to create a full continuum of care. Um, I mean, it's that's where it gets really exciting. Outstanding. Well, we have to take another break. Please stay with us. We'll be
1: right back.
0: Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Leadership Matters is brought to you by InnoVisions. Need to improve leadership, staff, or organization performance? Contact InnoVisions today for quality, effective, and affordable leadership, staff, and organization development training, coaching, and consulting services. Call 858-244-8264. That's 858-244-8264. Or send an email to Dr. White. Her email address is drwhite@innovisions.org. at Innovisions.org. Innovisions is a social enterprise of the Neighborhood House Association of San Diego, California. Funds raised go to support the Neighborhood House Association's mission, developing children, families, and future leaders of our communities through empowerment, education, and wellness. Effective leadership is what will propel the world, organizations, and businesses through a range of dynamic changes. How do you keep up with these changes, build skills, and lead effectively? Listen for Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf. Maureen offers tools and engaging guests who are leaders in their field. With each week, you'll work on and improve your skills to lead with confidence and drive your organization's success. Tune in every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Business. Trends in global business are changing.
2: All the time. It used to only be worrying about your competitor across the street, but now that competitor may be across the world. On Global Business with Mahesh Joshi, we discuss the trends in global business, plus issues and solutions that business leaders face today. Each show is guaranteed to teach you something that you didn't know before about global business. Listen live every Wednesday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.
0: You are listening to Leadership Matters with Doctor Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to Leadership Matters at innovations.org. Now, back to Leadership Matters.
1: We're back. I'm Tom Wall and with me is Ann Corner and our special guest, John Gianetta, the President and CEO of Heartland Family Services in Omaha, Nebraska. In the last segment, John was talking about Heartland's involvement in one of the Alliance's transformation projects. He talked about the importance of involving staff in the development of any significant organizational change efforts and he talked about the efforts that he's put forth to change the culture of his organization. In this third segment, we usually like to ask our panelists from the Center on Leadership to talk with our guest about change leadership. Anne, do you have a few questions for John?
2: Yes, I do. Uh, John, what do you believe is the future of our sector, especially when it comes to developing and harvesting the right talent? Do you see our sector as having a leadership deficit, and how might we combat this?
3: Um, You know, I I think we could have a leadership deficit. It's kind of up to us if we don't start doing some things now to make sure that doesn't happen. One of the things that probably concerns me the most is whenever I hear presentations or discussions about generational differences in the workplace – It seems like we go to this really dark place when it comes to talking about millennials and their capabilities to offer um, value to our organizations because they're so focused on only working nine to five and want all this leisure time and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And um, to a certain degree, I understand that because. Throughout history, I think cultural anthropologists have documented fairly well that when one culture meets another, we always walk away talking about what our points of differences are, and we evaluate those points of differences as being bad. It just seems to be part of the human condition. But I really think there's an opportunity for the generations currently in leadership positions to reframe how they see millennials and figure out how do we develop best development millennials to take up the reins when we when we leave, because I believe they're certainly capable. And I, I have, um, have had millennials and do have millennials on my leadership team, and they're amazing. And this notion that millennials aren't willing to work as hard as boomers, I think, is just not true.
2: Thank you. Uh, how do you see the role of equity play out at Heartland Family Service, especially when it comes to your program services and staff?
3: Well, um, equity has been a big part of our cultural transformation as well. Um, we initially, I mean, we've had a diversity council. And we've had a focus on diversity and inclusion for quite a while, um, predates me, and so um, and some energy around that. But it's a it's a um, an issue of really importance, of real importance to me. And so, when I started here, I started looking at how, how could we do more. And then when we started really um, exploring more and pushing more on the area of trauma-informed care, I realized that trauma-informed care without a focus on diversity, inclusion, and equity really rings hollow because at the very foundational level of trauma-informed care, you have to make sure everyone is feeling physically and emotionally safe. Well, you're not going to feel physically and emotionally safe in an environment that doesn't have a profound commitment to equity. And so... But I didn't want to see these things develop separately, so we kind of have merged them somewhat, and we'll oftentimes refer to it as our culture of inclusion, which includes trauma-informed care and diversity, inclusion, and equity. And, um, and, I, and I think um, we're, again, we have a long way to go, but, uh, because cultural change isn't easy, but I think we've made a lot of progress. We have um, a diversity officer now, um, and we've had a diversity officer for the last three or four years. Um, And that person has helped us to create employee resource groups. We have five employee resource groups, which are led by employees, staffed by employees, and each of them have their own charters, which lists their mission, their goals and objectives, all tied back to a business purpose and a staff development purpose or function. Uh, They each have their own budgets that we allocate to annually, and they accomplish quite a bit uh, for their benefit and the benefit of our clients and the benefit of our staff it's it's really um, encouraging to see what our staff are able to do. Um, and then um, it's really looking at how do we do a better job of partnering with our community and advancing equity in the community, which isn't something our agency has always seen as its role, but I think more and more we understand that, again, if some of those environmental conditions don't change, then the work that we're doing isn't going to be sustained. Mm-hmm. and um, And so it's caused... It's created more, uh, I think, impetus for having really difficult conversations internally because if we don't have them internally, we can't have them externally. It's also put a real focus on, we have a whole strategic plan just around uh, diversity as it relates to our staff, to our board. So we've really increased, uh, we exceed uh, exceed parity for diversity on our board. Uh, We exceed parity for diversity of our staff. Uh, we still have a uh, ways to go with management positions within our organization because um, people that move into those management positions tend not to leave for a long, long time. So there aren't as many opportunities to make changes there, but but we are. And um, and we're certainly developing people from within the organization, too, to be able to move up. So that includes, as part of um, my involvement in the alliance, early on, I think my second year in this role I attended the Alliance's Executive Leadership Institute, and for my capstone project for that, I created an internal leadership academy, and I'm just getting ready to um, run the eighth class of my leadership academy, which is an annual program we meet once a month, and again, we're bringing in diverse staff and creating future leaders, and even if they don't stay at Heartland, we've contributed to the betterment of the community by helping to develop these leaders.
2: Well, it sounds like you have so many structures in place. Um, that's really great to hear. Um, and you mentioned the Executive Leadership Institute, and I want to just comment on that a little bit. The Executive Leadership Institute is a program, a cer- certificate program, that's sponsored by the Alliance in partnership with the University of Michigan, their School of Social Work, and their School of Business. And how has your experience uh in, at ELI, as we have come to know it as, um, shaped your leadership journey, and um, how should leaders continue to develop themselves?
3: Well, I think it's that my experience in ELI was instrumental. Um, I just got so many really good ideas about leadership and future direction um, and, and vision for the work of our agency. Uh, I remember one day we visited um, Zingerman's Deli, which is a, which is a, really well-known um, business in Ann Arbor, and the guy who owns it, uh, Ari, um, I can't remember Ari's last name. You probably know it, Ann, but he. Um, He graduated from University of Michigan, I think he said, with a degree in Russian literature and described himself as an anarchist. And one (laughs) of the things he did in starting this company was he created a culture that he calls open business, where um, he doesn't hide any of the metrics that would dictate how his Company is doing, and in fact, he has them all written out on boards in the back, and he assigns them to his employees. And they regularly gather the data and report out on it, and talk about how it compares to goal. And they all problem solve when something is running, uh, something isn't meeting that goal. So whether it's the amount of time it takes for a customer to be greeted, the amount of time from greeting to being seated, from time from being seated to getting a menu, from the time of um, getting the menu to when the order goes in to being served, they have all these metrics. And even the financial metrics, he shares it all. And that just was like uh, eye-opening for me. And the other was... um, he created a vision story. We always hear about vision statements. That's maybe two or three sentences. But he created a whole story, page after page, which described what their, it was written in present tense, but describing their company maybe 20 years from now. And I took that back and created a vision story for our organization, taking us to 2030, but written in the present tense. And we're actually, we're just getting to the, ready to rewrite it because a lot of things Some things have changed, and we've made greater progress in some areas than others, but um, it's just had that kind of thinking and that kind of work has had a profound impact on the strategy that we've implemented. And so I I believe very strongly in continual learning. Uh, I think it's something that all of our staff should be doing, and they want, and so we as leaders should be modeling that. There's always something new to
2: learn, always. That's great. That's great. Uh, Tom, do you have some follow-up questions for yes, I,
1: John? I, I know that we probably, all three of us, view transformation and change leadership more as a journey than a destination. John, on this journey, where do you think that you have thus far made the most progress, and where do you think you need to put a lot more energy in order to achieve progress on perhaps some of the change areas that are much more difficult?
3: Um, Well, I think we've made a lot of progress just in um, strategic deployment
1: Mm -hmm.
3: and uh, measuring what matters and those sorts of things. I think now where I'm focusing more attention on is – uh, private fundraising and um, revenue generation that occurs outside of traditional methods. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as a large organization in, and well known in this in this community, many of the major foundations and philanthropists have funded us. But when I look at how they're funding other organizations that are significantly smaller and with achieving less impact. Um, what we're getting really pales in comparison. So it's doing a better job of telling our story to those entities and people so that they can understand that uh, we need their support, especially in this current climate where, um, you know, so much of the public funds that support us are uh, either going away or are threatened to go away. So, um, and I'll have, you know, donors come up to me and say, you know, really concerned about our domestic abuse services because in the president's budget, he completely zeroed out all the funding that would be affiliated with the uh, Victims of Crime Act and the Violence Against Women Act. And that funds probably, I don't know, two hundred seventy-five to $300,000 a year of what we do in, in our domestic abuse and sexual assault programming. And so funders have said, please let me know what, if anything like that happens because we, would, we don't want those programs to go away. I don't know if funders recognize what the amount is and that it would become an annual obligation. Like this wouldn't be just, a, okay, here's a, here's a check for you know, $200,000. Right. Now we don't have to worry about that program closing. No, it would be, it would, we would have to get that check every single year or a combination of checks that, that equal that amount. I'm not sure no. the private funding community necessarily completely understands sort of uh, the, the, the vacuum, the gap that would exist should some of those funding streams go away. Because that's just for us. There are other agencies in this town who rely on that, that particular example, that, that, those funding streams as well. And they would be, I'm, I'm assuming, asking for help too. Absolutely. No. The other piece is that we're doing this longitudinal research Mm-hmm. Uh, um, really trying to get to what happens to our clients a couple of years after they've left is yes. are, is there any level of stickiness? Uh, are they continuing to grow or are they needing help again? And so what's working, what's not working, and what programs or combinations of programs get the best results? And so we've we've started that. We did an intake process of about twelve hundred clients, so we've got a really nice sample size of all of our programs. And now every six months we'll be. Um, Gathering um, data from them to really get at um, longitudinal outcomes.
1: Outstanding. How important that is.
3: We're going to take another break,
1: have a short opportunity to wait, and then we'll be right back. Stay with us, please.
0: Business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio. Voice America Business Network. Leadership Matters is brought to you by InnoVisions. Need to improve leadership, staff, or organization performance? Contact InnoVisions today for quality, effective, and affordable leadership, staff, and organization development training, coaching, and consulting services. Call 858 244 8264. That's 858 244 8264. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to matters at innovations.org. Now, back to Leadership Matters. We're back. I'm Tom Wall, and with me is Ann Corner, and our special
1: guest, John Gianetta, the President and CEO of Heartland Family Services in Omaha, Nebraska. In the last segment, Ann and I were talking with John about some of the challenges of change leadership, and in this final segment, we usually like to turn to our special guests and ask them to offer some advice to the other practitioners in the field. John, what advice do you have to offer to other leaders who are trying to introduce transformational change into their organization?
3: Oh, gosh, I would say probably the biggest thing is be patient. It's like, um, you know, it's sort of like eating an elephant. You have to do it one bite at a time. And so um, be patient, but also tenacious. Don't give up. Um, And really look at, you know, a lot of it is about do you have the right people in the right seats uh, where they can really um, use their strengths in productive ways and make things happen where you're not having to... Manage it all, where you you've got people beneath you who are capable and auton- autonomous enough, and have the tools they need to make great things happen. And so you're you're an, you're the sort of the orchestra conductor to a certain degree, but you're not actually making any of the music happen. They're doing that, and making sure that that's happening. So you're kind of leveraging you're, you're leveraging you to that whatever power in terms of all these people that you have um, doing the important work. Um, and I think, too, um, to not be afraid of making mistakes because that's where you can really learn a lot. And, um, and when you're not afraid to make mistakes, that creates a culture of creativity and innovation. And so people are willing to take those risks and make really good things happen, understanding that lots of times it's going to fail. But that's okay because you'll learn from it and you can invest that learning back in the work.
1: Well, John, that's one of the things that we like to ask our guests in this segment to do, to please share a mistake that you may have made that allowed you to learn something important that you probably wouldn't have learned uh, if you hadn't made that mistake? Would you be willing to offer one of those to us?
3: Oh, my gosh, I have so many of them, I wouldn't even know where to start. Well, you know, one that I've been thinking about a lot lately is a few years ago, we were approached by our continuum of care for the homeless to apply uh, to be um, a lead agency to develop a central access system. And so they had an internal application process, another agency on the continuum wanted to partner with us, and so we, we applied. Well, so did two other agencies in the continuum. So it created this competition, but we went ahead and we were selected. And almost immediately after we were selected, the other two agencies that weren't selected, along with three of the major um, um, shelters, emergency shelters, created the Shelter Alliance, and basically spent the next year and a half um, obstructing progress and creating all kinds of just negative and sometimes just vicious rumors and information about the work and our agency and what have you. Mm-hmm. But we plugged away, and there were we were able to get some funding from our United Way, and then um, we had three major donors that were on that had said that they would support this and would help us institutionalize it and keep it going. But because the Shelter Alliance was so vocal, um, it kind of scared them. And, um, and, and we felt like we couldn't really um, combat what the Shelter Alliance was saying too aggressively because at the end of the day, those shelters had to be a part of the system or there was no system. Mm-hmm. And so it was just a really bad position to be in. And, the, and I mean, the, the learning there was that whenever you're doing any kind of a community impact sort of initiative, the, the agency leading it needs to be a neutral backbone agency. It can't be one of the providers. It just, that didn't work. The other thing was to, um, that we probably should have done, I should have done a better job of communicating to those major donors throughout the process and not assume that, they, because they were such big supporters of our agency that they would necessarily be- believe that what we were doing was the right thing in the face of so much negative feedback from the other um, obstructing agencies. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can also say, and, and so what ended up happening is the pilot funds we received from United Way went away, and um, and right when the um, philanthropic organizations were supposed to start um, picking up the tab to keep things going, they all decided to back away, and so we ended up having to fund the w- fund the um, the central access system for about three months as we winded it down and let people go and returned all the referral systems back to the various agencies it wasn 't something you could just pull the plug pl- plug on quickly, right. and uh, we ended up with about a three hundred thousand dollar Deficit in that program, and it really led to about three or four years of operating deficits and cash flow problems, and a lot of other things happened at the same time. It wasn't just that one thing, but that was like one of the precipitating events. And um, but you know, uh, on the plus side, we. We took all of the data that we were able to gather in that pilot, and we created a really nice report. Again, it was more expense, but we felt like we needed to do it because so, we could finally tell our story. It didn't matter if anyone was offended because the system wasn't going to keep developing, and we um, published that. And the support that we have from those foundations has only grown. Uh, there are... While they didn't, they couldn't go back and fund us and make us whole from what we lost. They have increased what they give us in annual operating every year, and in that way have made us more than whole. And one of those uh, foundations just came to us this year and asked us for a transformational um, proposal to end homelessness, and just gave us eight and a half million dollars for the next three years to really do. Oh my goodness! To make an impact. So. That's why I say don't shy away from those opportunities. I mean, ideally no one wants to lose $300,000 in an annual operating budget and go into the hole. Um, but um sometimes those mistakes will happen and I think we always felt like we were doing the right thing and we were doing the best that we could do and um and so we made lemonade out of our lemons. <laughs> Beautiful.
1: John finally, what lies ahead for Heartland Family Services? You know, what new adventures are you hoping for to be involved in? Share your strategic plan with us in in a encapsulated version.
3: Well, so we do strategic planning in uh, four year cycles, and our current st- strategic plan has three um, overarching initiatives. One is um, empowering our um, a diverse and engaged workforce. Another is expanding public and private support for our mission for the work that we do, and the third is. Um, uh, really creating more, um, innovation and, um, expanding the use of technology, um, as we, um, deliver our services and, um, But we're just winding that down. This is that we're in the last six months of that plan. So we're just moving into a strategic planning cycle now. Uh, I've been meeting with all of our staff and asking them seven questions about our organization, like what do you love and hope will never change? What's the first thing to change about it if you could? What excites you about the future? What scares you about the future? You know, all those sorts of things that you would anticipate would be in a SWOT analysis. And I'm meeting individually with our board members and our leadership team and with funders and others to get that information as well. And then this fall we'll go into strategic planning. But what I anticipate, you know, for the future is probably that we'll continue to grow. Um, We are in conversations with a couple of um, other um, behavioral health organizations now about some sort of merger or collaboration. Um, We're part of, in the state of Iowa, we're part of... um, a network of community mental health providers, and um, that's, um, and it's, we set it up as a for-profit entity, and so that's really kind of getting going and helping us really, um, and from a system level, um, look at how do we advocate around issues of parity and reimbursement and fee structures and all those sorts of things. Um like I said, we're going to be doing expanding considerably to serve the homeless and really try to do more to um, keep people out of emergency shelter or move them out of emergency shelter more quickly if they end up there Beautiful. and do more in prevention homeless prevention so they never go there at all and um, continue to work on um, how do we integrate our services across the board so that we're really addressing underlying traumas and um, continuing to measure the impact that we have because everything is moving towards value-based contracting. So we've got to understand the return on investment so that we can position ourselves in the future to continue to get those investments to do this important work. Important you have work. a great vision, John. Thanks so much for joining us. The, you bet.
1: That's all we have time for today. Thanks to Ann Corner and to our special guest, John Gianetta. Please join us again next time for another edition of Leadership Matters.